Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to remind you of all the different ways you can get your hands on one of my designs. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest clothing available in sizes 2 through 28. I personally design and pattern every single piece in the collection so that it is fitted to perfection and every single piece runs the same. That means that once you know your size, that is your size in every single piece in the collection. Pretty cool, no? You could shop the collection online at impactfashionnyc.com. Shipping is totally free in the U.S. and the return policy is, if I do say so myself, better than Amazon. You have 30 days to make a decision and don't even have to pay return shipping or any sort of annoying restocking fee. Impact Fashion can also be found at the address at American Dream Mall. The address is a curated, modest department store and definitely worth a visit if you are not an online shopping type of person. The American Dream Mall is located right next to the Meadowlands Sports Complex in New Jersey, and to get to the address, you're going to want to park in Lot C, Level 3. Make a left when you walk in, and you'll see the address on your right. I'm always happy to chat, whether that's to answer your sizing questions or just get to know each other better. Find me on Instagram and TikTok at impact.fashion.nyc or on WhatsApp status at 516-953-9391. You can also email me. It's rifky, R-I-V-K-Y, at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own And on today's show, I sit down with the founder of Atsmi, an organization focused on improving the self-esteem of Jewish girls. She shares the genetic factors of eating disorders and why Jewish women are more likely to develop one, how pressure to be perfect can contribute to risk for eating disorders, and how her curriculum incorporates Torah. When I first heard of the work Dr. Marcy Forda was doing with Atsmi, I immediately got very excited. There is almost no research on how mental illness affects the Jewish Orthodox community specifically, and oftentimes we are misunderstood by those trying to help. The fact that her work is tackling the deadliest of all mental illnesses, eating disorders, in a way specifically designed for our community is a very welcome breath of fresh air. Ah, what was I like? Wow. All right, you get right in there. Um, I guess you could say I was a little bit shy um, when I was really little. I, I I was a little, I kept myself a little bit more. I. I came out of my shell a little bit in high school, but I think I think shy is a really kind of good way to describe me. A lot of people who like now are in very outward facing type professions actually describe themselves as shy. And it always like it, it I at this point, I really shouldn't be surprised, but it's always a fun little quirk of how things work out. Yeah. Yeah. Very quiet. Kind of kept to myself. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I hear it. And I'm assuming that you were somewhat academic because we know that you are a doctor. Tell me about, you know, tell me about, you know, that whole decision, what kind of doctor you are, how that how that all came to be. OK, so that is quite the story of what I do now. Um, I actually went to college. I got an MBA, so I was very business minded, business oriented. Everything I did was always starting my own businesses uh, from, you know, uh, just helping people with stationery and invitations to uh, working at a pharmacy management corporation for a while. Um, but then I owned my own store, my own clothing store, which is kind of similar, a little similar to what you do. I didn't design my own clothing line, uh, but I, I had my own clothing store for about 15 years. And um, 
I really noticed when I was doing the clothing, it just really hit me a lot that everyone was struggling. It was the first, I live in Detroit, Michigan, and it was the first uh, modest clothing store for women and girls. So we went probably from a size about four uh, all the way up to two, three, four X, whatever I could get my hands on, which wasn't easy to do, to be honest with you. It's not, it wasn't that easy at the time. Uh, I started in 2000, so it was a while ago. Uh, and I just noticed there was a lot of stress and struggle around changing bodies. So young girls becoming young women. Um, what does that mean for my body? How do I dress my new body? How do I feel in this body? They were very uncomfortable. They didn't know what to do. Mothers feeling very horrible for their children, not knowing how to approach it with them. Young mothers, especially who had just had babies feeling like their bodies weren't back to where they were. A lot of apologies about bodies, a lot of, I'm going to buy this in a smaller size and I, and I will fit into it. I'm going to make sure I fit into it. Um, even women who are older and their bodies were changing a little bit, also feeling like uncomfortable and wanting to dress their bodies. There was a lot of, it, it's a very intimate um, kind of profession. I think you'll agree with that. So I saw a lot of that. I spent a lot of time with people. I hope that I helped them. I really tried to. Uh, and, and after about 15, 16 years, I decided to sell the store kind of, it was just becoming very difficult. My kids were getting older and they were coming home from yeshivas right at Yom Tov time, which is your busy holiday time, which is your busy, busy time of year. Um, and it just became too stressful for me. So I decided to sell the store. Uh, but when I closed the store, I don't know why I feel like God was giving me a message that I just needed to do something to help people. It kept coming back to me. It kept coming back to me. Uh, just the things that I saw in the store and my own personal history and struggle with an eating disorder. So these weren't necessarily eating disorders that were going on in the store. I would say they were more body image struggles, feeling comfortable in your body. But for me as a teen, it was an eating disorder. And so when you have an eating disorder, it's something that really kind of stays with you throughout your life, even though you're no longer maybe affected by it or struggling with it. It's something that still shapes kind of who you are. Um, and I kept talking to my husband and I kept saying, I need to do something in this realm. It's, it's, it's really weighing on me heavily. So we went back and forth. Um, I started to write a book about my own personal struggle, but it, I felt like if I really wanted to be able to help people before it becomes an eating disorder, then what I needed to do was go back to school. That is when I went back to school and got my doctorate in education, uh, specifically in uh, educational leadership in behavioral health, in order to be able to, first of all, study the unique risk factors in the Jewish Orthodox community, but also to be able to create programs uh, for our girls in the schools, curriculum for them. And so I went back to school. So it took about five years to get my doctorate, uh, another year or so to create the curriculum, uh, a while to test the curriculum. And last year was the first year we used our curriculum in the schools. Um, so that's pretty much the story. You mentioned that you had a, a, a personal struggle with an eating disorder. Is that something that you can tell me a little bit more about? Is that something you're comfortable sharing more about? Sure. I'll, yeah, definitely. Um, I was uh, about 14 when it started. I I kind of have a memory, you know, of coming home from camp and I had gained a little bit of weight and um, a family member kind of made a comment to me about it that I had put on some pounds. And I just remember at that moment feeling like, you know what, no one's ever going to tell me that ever again. Um, and it kind of started this downward spiral of control and controlling what I ate. Um, I did end up having anorexia nervosa uh, 
I, I feel that I was very fortunate, however, that my parents were noticed what was going on with me right away. Um, my mom really kind of took charge of what was happening after, you know, I had lost a lot of weight because at first, of course, people are always, oh, you look so great. What are you doing? Um, you know, asking if, you know, how, how can you be so uh, disciplined with your food and what you're eating? But after a while, obviously, my parents were noticing what was going on, uh, taking me to doctors. This was quite a while ago. So it wasn't something that is as known today. Um, and even though my doctor said, I'm not seeing anything right now in the blood work, let's leave it alone. My mom wasn't okay with that. Um, so I, I feel like she spearheaded me getting better. Um, and it was about, uh, I struggled for about three, three and a half years. Um, but, you know, thank God, thank God, uh, I was able to get my period back. I was able to get back to normal, uh, a normal weight and feeling better, but it took a while and it, and it took a lot of time before I felt comfortable in this new body that I was kind of forced to have after the eating disorder. Um, and so you, you always kind of have that feeling of discomfort in your body a little bit when you've experienced an eating disorder. So it's kind of a struggle that I think somebody who has had an eating disorder knows a little better, but I feel that I can understand what everyone else feels in their body. Right. Like that, that experience of like not feeling so in tuned with the skin that you're in is something that I think everyone experiences to some level at some point in their life, even if it's not, you know, tied to an eating disorder, we've all had moments where we've just felt like not ourselves or like, like we needed to burst out of the skin that we were in or, or something along those lines. I agree with you a hundred percent. I think it's a struggle we've all had. It's not that, you know, people with an eating disorder can only understand it. It's just at a different level. Um, but, you know, the studies actually show that over 80% of people have had moments of feeling complete discomfort in their bodies or unhappy with their bodies. So, I, and I would say the numbers are much higher for women. It might not, It's not every day, but I'm saying at some point, we've all experienced that struggle of feeling uncomfortable in our bodies. It happens to be that genetics play a big part of risk for an eating disorder. And for whatever reason, you know, between nine and 12% of people will develop an eating disorder in their lifetime. But for Jewish females, and I'm not saying religious or not, for Jewish females, the studies show that we could be up to two times as likely to have an eating disorder. That's what the studies are showing, um, which it shows the high genetic propensity for it. So if you think about it in those so terms, between 18 and 20. Yeah, between 18 and 24% of Jewish women could have an eating disorder. That's up to a quarter of us. That's a huge number. I think people think it's a very limited amount of people, um, but it isn't as few as you think that it is. No, that's a 25% is a huge, I mean, 24%, whatever. It's a, that's a huge percentage. But it's, I always thought that when we talk about these like higher risk factors among Jewish girls or among Jewish women or among specifically Orthodox Jewish women, I always thought that those risk factors were societal, not that they were necessarily genetic in in nature. Can you speak more to that? Because I always thought that it kind of stemmed from like this because because we are like very marriage minded and very insular and like all of the gunk that goes out in the real world becomes that much more magnified in our insular communities. I thought that those were kind of like the unique things that made Jewish women more likely to develop an eating disorder. And you're saying that the studies show that's not necessarily the case. Well, what no, you're you're 100 percent correct. What the studies are showing is that we have um, 
the genetic propensity, but then we have risks that kind of uh, will push you over the edge. So I like to think of it as, um, think of it as like celiac disease, Crohn's disease, uh, diabetes. So you have a genetic propensity, right? For something, something triggers the onset of the illness. What triggers our onset will be our other risk factors in our community, those cultural, societal um, pressures, you know, family situations, those will trigger it, but we might be more genetically predisposed for it to come out that way. Um, and that's kind of how I describe it or explain it. Really, for uh, they'll tell you new studies have just come out between 40 and 60% of your risk for an eating disorder is genetic. Something then triggers the onset of that disorder. And it doesn't mean that your mom has a disorder because um, anorexia especially, even though there are other eating disorders that people don't always realize about, anorexia especially is very highly correlated with OCD. There's a lot of genetic similarities between OCD, you know, perfectionism, things like that. So it doesn't mean that someone else in your family is going to have an eating disorder, but they might be predisposed. Just like, um, you know, it tends to be that people of Ashkenazi descent might have more stomach ailments and issues. We just tend to have certain types of struggles. And so um, this is one of those things. Thinking about it in terms of my lactose intolerance actually makes a lot of sense to me. As a, uh, as someone <laughs> yeah. with a proud Ashkenazi Jewish stomach, <laughs> this makes a lot, that, that kind of thing where it's like you, you have, there are environmental factors. We eat a lot of cheese that aggravates my stomach, creates issues, you know, all of that. But also just yeah. the fact that like my stomach is what my stomach is and my grandparents are and their grandparents are who they are, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore I can't have too much cheese. So yeah, like all, all of that seems Absolutely. to make, a, <laughs> all of that seems to make a lot of sense to me. And, and so you took all of this information and, and all of your research and everything, and you used it to develop Atsmi, which like you said, is a curriculum for schools. Why do you think it's so important yes. to get this into schools, like in, in, in that way? And, and what kind of information are we giving people? Are we just telling them like, by the way, be on the lookout for an eating disorder? How do, how are we combating the prevalence of eating disorder, uh, disorders, excuse me, in, in our society? That is an amazing question. So I'm going to, I want to say one thing before I get there. I want to say also that part of recognizing that an eating disorder has those genetic predispositions will hopefully lessen the stigma around it, because for whatever reason in our community, stigma for eating disorders is very high. So much so I had a therapist uh, tell me that she was speaking to a husband of a woman with a very severe eating disorder. And he tells people that, that the reason they can't have kids is because his wife has cancer, not because she's ill with an eating disorder. The stigma around it in our communities and in general, I think the stigma is very high, not just in the Jewish community, but it is high in our community. So I think that it's really important that we kind of let people know that so that we can lessen the stigma around it. It isn't necessarily something that you control. It isn't something you control. Um, okay. I, uh, as far as ATSMI goes, so the curriculum for ATSMI was created. We, we have workshops in the eighth grade, the 10th grade, and the 12th grade. We call the school curriculum the My Best Self Project. And when you're um, talking about eating disorder prevention, um, one thing that people should know about eating disorders is they never occur in isolation. So someone doesn't just have an eating disorder and not have some type of co-occurring condition with it, which whether that's anxiety, depression, OCD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, social anxiety disorder, whatever it is, 
over 95 or 6% of the time, they're going to have something else that goes along with it. So what's been done in conventional prevention programs is they literally just address appearance, ideal, and body image, social media, things like that. But what I've created is something different in that I want to also uh, address some of the comorbidities that could go along with the eating disorder. So Can I pause you for we a do... What is sure. the difference between a comorbidity and a symptom? Because I, I like I know that we see like these disorders in general that like kind of go to like anxiety and OCD are kind of one word almost like they they tend to go together. What does that what does that mean? Does that mean that one causes the other? Does that mean that they just like are kind of close cousins? What like what does that actually translate to? So uh, a comorbidity would be like a co-occurring condition. So when we talk about anxiety, it's just not like regular anxiety, maybe that you or I would have, you know, maybe you before a clothing show, show or for me, public speaking, like we get anxiety. Um, anxiety is a, an actual diagnosis of a, 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 an illness uh, or a struggle that somebody's having, just like depression. So when I'm saying a co morbidity or co-occurring condition i'm talking about like the medical terminology of what that is it's not just anxiety regular anxiety because everyone has some anxiety that's normal um there are days when we're sad but it doesn't mean that we're diagnosed with depression so it's that just that kind of medical terminology of how they would do the difference in a diagnosis versus someone who just kind of has some of those traits like you said or symptoms um so lots of people with eating disorders are also diagnosed with like you said anxiety ocd those like those kind of medical terms, I guess, like those, exactly. the real word, not like the way that we would just say, I'm a warrior. So I have anxiety. Exactly. Exactly. The medical terminology of it. That's exactly Okay. So right. how do you go about addressing that when it comes to eating disorders? So what we do in our programs is we help with emotion regulation. We talk to the girls about the concept and the practice of self-compassion. We talk about how to understand their boundaries, what priorities, how do they set priorities? How do they, um, uh, what, you know, how do they cultivate and have healthy relationships? Um, part of also how you head off eating disorders is by creating what we call cognitive dissonance. So we're kind of giving them seeds to think about. Cognitive dissonance means we're creating a discomfort in how they're thinking about something. They've been taught, let's say, that the appearance ideal or what beauty is to them means having, let's say, for instance, a thin, a tiny waist. Um, so we're going to go in there and we're going to question how society tells us that we have to look a certain way and how that benefits us and how that doesn't necessarily isn't reflective of health or mental health or physical health. So we're going to go in there and help plant seeds to have them think about their health and what society tells them is the ideal way to look in a different way, because we want them to be able to create new pathways to how they think about things. That is the way we help them, not by feeding them information because they, then they don't think about it and absorb it on their own. Um, in order to do this, so that that's the empirical part of kind of what we've done. In the Jewish world, we have our own, you know, Torah, our own Bible, our own philosophies that we can use. But I've taken um, what we have, um, our traditions, and I've used them along with the empirical methods of how to head off eating disorders. I've kind of expanded on what's already being done. And 
I choose to do this in eighth, 10th, and 12th grade very specifically. People will often say to me, girls are thinking about their bodies younger than eighth grade. Why are you starting in eighth grade? And that is very true. The studies show that girls as young as three are already believing that thin is good and fat is bad. As young as three years old, we're seeing that. But the reality is, is that parents are the primary source of somebody's feelings about their body and themselves. They're the primary influence of a child until about the age of 11. Um, once you hit 11, it's the peers who become the primary influence about bodies and, and about themselves. So eighth grade is about 12, 11, 12 years old, 13. So that we're hitting that time when peers are becoming primary. So part of what we do at Atsmi is we also do a parent workshop. We want the parents to have the the skills and the and the words and the phraseology to speak to their children in a way that will help them cultivate a more positive uh, and comfortable body and self-image. That's kind of their job until the age of 11. Um, once we hit 11 or 12, they're going to be more influenced by their friends. So we want to kind of give them those abilities in those ages. 10th grade has been shown to be the best age for prevention programs. So we go harder and heavier into appearance, ideal, and body image in the 10th grade curriculum. And in our 12th grade curriculum, which is pre going off to seminary, college, whatever they're doing, they're kind of going to be on their own for the first time. And it's pre, like you said, marriage, which is a stressor in our community. Um, we give them the concepts of healthy relationships and boundaries in our relationships and how we set priorities for ourselves to kind of help them to the next place that they're going to be going. Um, and then we also do a teacher workshop as well, because studies show that there are a lot of weight stigma, uh, weight bullying, and things like that that go on in classrooms that teachers may not be aware of or realize that they're allowing it to happen in their classrooms. They're obviously, they're not proponents of it and they're not, uh, you know, they're, it's not something that they're, they're, they're promoting, but at the same time, if they don't realize how to head it off, um, then they might be in, inadvertently hurting some of the students. So we talk about that in the workshop and also, of course, signs and symptoms of eating disorders. One of the things that it's really important to know is that when it comes to eating disorders, we don't talk about them specifically. We don't talk with the girls about symptoms or what people with eating disorders do. This can be very triggering to somebody who is at the precipice or like close to developing an you eating disorder. You don't want to be giving someone instructions on how to have an eating disorder. Exactly. Exactly. So um, they might ask about an eating disorder in the class and that's fine. You know, we'll talk to them about it a little bit, but you don't really uh, have people tell their stories anymore with detail. Um, that's not something that we do. And that's not something that we talk about with the parents and the teachers. Obviously, we talk more about the signs and symptoms, risk factors, things like that, because they need to know. Uh, but we're not with the girls. So when you say that, like when you when these workshops are being given in schools, uh, is Atsmi sending someone to give the workshop or are you training the teachers on how to give it to their own class? Great question. So what we do um, is we train somebody in the school who, who we've, you know, we, along with the school, we kind of choose somebody. Oftentimes it's the school social worker. They have a different type of relationship with the girls. I don't want it to be their teacher. That's the only real hard no that I have because it's a workshop. We want them to feel open and comfortable to talk about certain things. It's not that same student teacher relationship. So it might be a student in a younger grade or a younger woman who might have some idea about some of these concepts, but the social workers tend to be a person to kind of give uh, the workshop or, you know, implement it. Um, 
And so that way also it keeps the cost down for the school because they don't have to fly anybody out. It's, it's four weeks in a row. There are only four sessions for each grade. So there's 12 sessions total throughout, four and eighth, four and 10th and four and 12th. Um, and we only charge for the journals. Each grade has a beautiful journal that comes along with the workshop. We do in the journal will be some concepts that we're going over, but also a place to do their exercises and some inspirational quotes. Um, and it's kind of something for them to keep as part of their journey, right? They'll see how their feelings before and how they changed going along. And then it'll also be something to go back to if they ever need to go back to it. Um, so we only charge for the journal because we want all the schools to be able to have access to it. Um, so just what it costs us for, there are some supplies, you know, the journal and the supplies. You're covering your um, costs basically. Yeah, we have very generous donors, thank God. And so we, we try to keep the cost very low. So what, in terms of like, as a student, am, am I getting a different workshop in eighth grade than I am in 10th grade than I am in 12th grade? I would imagine you have to kind of move it around a little bit because you can't talk to a, you know, an eighth grade is someone in eighth grade is what, 13, 14 and a 12th grader is 18. Like those are very different times in your life. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. We are covering different types of things. The one thing that we are covering in all three will be appearance, ideal and body image, how we cover it and how in depth we go into it will be different, you know, for each level, but we will cover different types of things. You know, eighth grade is, uh, it's very important besides emotion regulation is also to talk about kind of things that are in my control and not in my control. Um, some of the concepts that we talk about for appearance, ideal and body image might be very different for an eighth grader versus a 10th grader versus a 12th grader. Um, we do want to cover some of the similar things, and especially because this is our first time giving it, the 12th graders won't have had the benefit of the eighth and the 10th grade curriculum. So we do try to stick some of those important concepts in the 12th grade one right now, which may not over time need to be in there. Oh, right. Because as you're rolling out the curriculum, now everyone's getting it for the first time. Exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned before, and I, and I do want to talk about, you know, how the first year of the program has been going and we'll get there. But you mentioned before this idea of like specifically because you are working with Jewish schools, um, this idea of kind of incorporating the Torah knowledge or the Jewish philosophies into the program. What does that look like? Like, can you give me an example of a of a Torah concept that you weave into these conversations about appearance, ideal and body image and, and everything we've been talking about? So really, there are a lot of amazing quotes and, and rabbis who have talked about the concept of bodies and our physical bodies, taking care of our bodies. I think more of appearance, ideal and body image, we do talk about the, the importance of beauty, according to the Torah, but we might take a concept such as love your neighbor as yourself, um, which is a very important concept, right? And the eighth grade will talk about the idea that sometimes it, we think it's easier to be kinder to our friend or uh, a peer of ours, right? If, um, if something happens to them, or they do something wrong, we can be kinder to them about it. But the idea in the Torah of love your neighbor as yourself means that until you learn properly how to care for and love yourself, you actually can't fulfill this commandment to do it for somebody else. And I think this, this is very eye-opening for the girls because they've always just assumed, we always assume it's very much easier 
you know, it's, it, it is easier to be nicer to somebody else. But the reality is they don't realize they're not actually fulfilling this commandment correctly. And we do this from the lens of the practice of self-compassion, um, which has, you know, three main tenants. And we, we kind of give examples and we go through these examples with the girls um, so that they can understand how to cultivate self-compassion for themselves. How can they learn to treat themselves with kindness? Because you can't just tell somebody to do it. It doesn't work like that. We have to give them the tools to help them learn how to actually speak to themselves kinder, treat themselves in a certain way. Um, and, and that's what we do with the concept of self-compassion, which is a more secular concept, but it's something that's very important. Right. Like this idea of, you know, taking these, these phrases that we know, like you said, love your neighbor as you love yourself and thinking about what does that really mean? And then what does it mean to really love myself? And how do I go about doing that? Correct. I think so. One of the biggest risk factors I found in my study uh, for eating disorders in the Orthodox community is what I call expectations of homogeneity. So our girls are often meant to aspire to certain things that we want them to to accomplish. If a girl is different and her, maybe she's not as academic or she looks differently or she's not as talented in certain ways or she might not want her husband to, to do what a typical Jewish husband might do, then there's a lot of shame or feeling uncomfortable and not knowing what your place is and where you fit. And this is a risk for an eating disorder and other mental health issues. So part of what we're trying to do with our My Best Self project is for the children, for the girls to understand that um, God created them exactly as they're meant to be. He gave them every talent, ability, capability, um, every special power that they're meant to have. They actually have it. We talk about if you have it, you need it. If you need it, you have it. And you should, uh, this is what your job is in this world. We don't, we're not, we don't need to do what somebody else is doing. God already created that person. We need you for what you do. And the fact that they're here on this earth at this time means the world cannot exist without them as they are. And it's really important for me, for the girls to feel that that special, that uniqueness that Hashem, God created them with. Um, and that is what we're trying to give them. Because once they feel better about who they are and they feel comfortable in their own skin, everything else kind of falls into place for them as when we give them the tools and the skills to do that, but it helps them feel more comfortable in their own skin. So what you're talking about this expectations of homogene homogeneity, that's a funny word. Um, but like, you're basically talking about conformity, just like this idea that, and, and, and this is actually a topic that's come up on the podcast quite, quite a bit, this idea that like, there's a timeline that your lives follow, right? You, you go to school, you graduate school, you spend a year in Israel, you come back, you get married, you have kids, maybe you have a job, maybe you don't, maybe your husband works, maybe he doesn't, but like, there's this very specific timeline that we're all supposed to follow. Is the risk risk factor the fact that that expectation exists or is the risk or is the risk factor excuse me not fitting in with whatever that timeline is like is someone who's single for longer let's say more likely to develop an eating disorder wow that's a great question um I don't know if someone who's single for longer will. She might be stressed in different ways. If that's her propensity, sure, it's definitely possible. I think it's more that if somebody just doesn't fit the mold of what our expectations are, because one of our pressures is academic pressure for certain. We're a very oh, academic, course. you know what I mean? So for a girl who may, maybe doesn't get good grades or has a struggle with learning or doesn't get into the seminary, that her plans in life, you know, dictate that she should go to. These are really 
big pressures and struggles for her. Um, and even looking a certain way, um, you know, in our community, it, it sometimes we talk about the fact that our externals aren't that important, right? Our interconnection to God, um, how we fulfill the commandments, uh, you know, how we live our lives, that's what's really primary and important. And that's what we should look for in, a, in another person to spend our life with. But at the same time, sometimes we give them a mixed message because we're saying, but yes, but you have to be skinny and you have to be pretty and you have to dress well and you have to do all these other things at the same time, um, which makes it uh, a very stressful thing for a girl right because she's like but you're saying one thing but you're doing another so which one is it I don't know if I can be perfect in every way and I where am I supposed to put my energy and what is more important um that is where the stress is um and that is I think where the risk comes in that makes a lot of sense to me especially because there is such a disconnect between what we say and what practically ends up happening where it's like listen I don't know if anybody's done a study on this, but anecdotally, it seems that like the skinny, pretty girls get more dates. Like that just happens. And and I've heard from countless women, married and single, who were told that they needed to lose weight in order to date. And that was just, that's a thing that just, it's it's almost like, it's not even shocking when you say it because everyone is like, you're either thinking, well, I mean, yeah, duh. Or it's, or you've heard it so many times that that it's that it's just not, that exciting like it's just not it's not shocking anymore it's just something that we know happens and you're right it is I never thought about it in that in that way of like oh well now I need to like now I need to be the skinniest the prettiest the most well-dressed you know the most put together and also be this like perfect spiritual being that sounds right. very stressful it is very stressful it is very stressful what are some of the other what, what are some of the other risk factors that we see specifically in the Jewish community. You mentioned this homogeneity aspect. What are what are other things that, you know, that that are that what what are our other risk factors? Um so we definitely have some um like we talked about the academic pressure. There are a lot of pressures in our community. Um I would say, you know, pressures to be thin, uh pressures to be perfect. Uh we have a lot of um I would say difficulty asking for help. So um we mm. we kind of give this, um, you know, we give off this energy that like you're you, you asking for help is, is bad. It's a negative thing. And the girls see this and, and this becomes a pressure for them because they feel like something's wrong with them if they need to ask for help. I hear a lot from the girls um, when I've given this intervention and when I hear, talk to the social workers about it afterwards, that they feel a lot of the time that their moms are perfect, right? They, they have a baby and they, they right away, either they're going back to work or, you know, they're back to lunches, they're back to having company over for Sabbath, they're back to, you know, helping with the homework and doing everything in their career. Um, and they feel that their moms are perfect. This is almost impossible for them we know no one's perfect. We know the mothers are struggling and they don't want to put that burden on their children, but they don't understand that if they don't let their child know that, that being perfect is not expected. It's not normal. It's it. We're going to have struggles. We're going to have, you know, difficult things that we can't do or whatever. We're going to need to ask for help. If we don't normalize that, then we are actually making it very difficult for our children. Um, I would say, you know, we have a lot of weight stigma. We have a lot of stigma in general, obviously in our communities, but I do think it's better. I do think the mental health aspect has gotten better and that people are getting help. And I believe that people are really trying, but like I said, there's a lot of stigma against eating disorders for whatever reason. Um, and, and there is still some mental health stigma. So I think that that's a big thing, um, kind of that has to go. Um, obviously social media is not just for our communities, 
of course, because we probably have less use of social media, but at the same time, we have our own kosher magazines that are also, um, you know, highlighting and promoting being thin and doing anything it takes to be beautiful and have a facelift and get skinny and have cosmetic procedures. Um, these are our forms of social media. So maybe it's easy to say, you know, a regular out there form of social media that the girls may or may not be using isn't as influential, even though it is, but at the same time, we have our own personal mannequins in stores and, and, and clothing stores that only go up to a certain size and magazines, um, things like that. Um, so that's definitely something that we have. Of course, you know, family is a huge, huge pressure for a girl and a risk factor, depending on how parents talk to their child about their bodies and their weight and what they compliment them on. I can tell you stories and stories of grandparents who, literally pay their ch grandchildren to lose weight. You know, I'll pay you by the pound. I'll pay you with a shopping trip. I'll pay you, take you somewhere as a trip or mothers who might not want their kids to eat what the rest of the family's eating because they want them to lose weight. And I believe in my heart that these people are wanting their child not to go through what they went through. They're really only doing this because they think that their child won't suffer what they did. Um, they're not doing it on purpose. We've all grown up in the same culture. We've all heard the same messages, but they don't realize what they're doing is so damaging and so harmful to their child. Weight stigma is one of the worst things you can do for somebody. It causes so many negative things. So that's what I like to really talk to them about. Um, and then of course, food. Food is a whole conversation in and of itself. We're a very food-oriented religion. Um, and this can be difficult for somebody who isn't struggling with their body or their body image. But if you think about how food, you know, for holidays and for Sabbath they every week. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat. <laughs> exactly. And how we use food. We tend to use food in schools and other places as rewards. Um, you know, do this and you'll earn this food. Do this and you get a treat. Food is really a tool for nourishment and health. It's not meant to be used as a reward. And when we use it that way, or as a punishment, we kind of uh, mix signals for our child to understand what, what am I using this food for? Is it an emotional comfort? Is it something that gets me something? Or am I supposed to eat when I'm hungry and stop when I'm full? And that's kind of what happens is we start to tell our kids, you didn't finish what's on your plate, finish what's on your plate. Well, I was full, huh? I didn't think I should finish what's on my plate, but my mom says that I have to, or um, you ate enough, no more. Oh, but I really feel like I'm still hungry. But my mom's saying I can't, can't be hungry anymore. So that's when we kind of mess up their signals because when a child is an, an infant, they won't eat more than they want. You can't you can't force them to take the bottle or you know you can't nurse them anymore. When they're done, they're done. Um, we kind of mess up that relationship of, with food over time, and so we don't only use food then as a tool for nourishment and and food is love and food is celebration um there's nothing wrong with any kind of food it's just that we need to understand what we're using it for and how we're promoting food that i think is the big takeaway but that's a huge conversation but food is a big issue obviously for our community yeah i'm, um, I'm sure that's that's a whole other thing talk to me about how the first year of atsumi has been talk to me about what it's been like rolling this curriculum out in schools what you're seeing feedback from parents and teachers how's how's your first year been so it's actually you know i i, I give a lot of credit to principals and social workers there's so many more people attuned to what's going on in their classrooms i think Getting into schools is not easy because anything new obviously takes time and they want to review the curriculum and make sure that they feel that it's good for their students. And I, I respect and understand that. Um, so 
my goal actually was 10 schools for the first year because each school you have to talk to them and go through it. And then I travel, either I do it via Zoom or I travel to them to do the, t- the parent and the teacher presentation um, and just to meet with them. Um, so my goal was 10. And this year, thank God we were in 16 schools. Um, we have other schools signed on already for this upcoming school year. Uh, we've gotten some fantastic feedback. Uh, the social workers are really thrilled um, with the program, thank God. Uh, you know, there are always people here and there who, I would say the eighth grade is the hardest grade to kind of reach the girls. They have some very fixed feelings about certain things and it's a little harder to reach them. Um, it's hard sometimes for them to understand the importance of our physical body. Uh, they feel like our soul is the only thing that has value, but our physical body is is not as valuable as our soul. But really, we try to let them understand that it's the vehicle that carries our soul in this world and that it's our job to care for it a certain way. So the eighth grade has been the hardest grade to kind of reach. But once the te- once they get in there with them, like the, the girls have loved it. Um, and like I said, everyone's been very open to it. I just, it's hard to reach the right person in the school. It takes time to cultivate that relationship. Um, so my biggest struggle really is that connection, you know, finding people to connect me with the schools that they know this person. Oh, I know her, you know, let's talk to her. She knows what she's talking about. That That is the hardest part. Um, but, you know, we are also actually studying. I have researchers who are working with me to, we do a pre-survey and a post-survey after the workshop. I want to make sure that I'm not just giving them good information. I need to measure that I am actually changing their behaviors and thoughts about certain things so that I know that I've done this correctly. So we're working on that as well. Um, so it's slowly, slowly going, you know what I mean? But we're, we're growing, we're growing. What types Thank of God. schools are you seeing adopt this? Actually, we've had school from modern Orthodox, Lubavitch, Yeshivish. We've had um, even very Hasidish all the way. We've, we've had all the schools. Um, we've kind of created the curriculum in a way that we have um, different kinds of quotes and things that can be used in the teacher's notes, but everything that we use in the journals and in the um, PowerPoint presentation that we give the teachers is very non-denominational and uh, just very, you know, more basic. And then they can personalize it to their audience, but we've used it in every kind of school. And and so you're seeing this this as like across the Jewish spectrum. You're seeing that the schools are finding that they are comfortable with the material and also that they can adopt it to the specifics that their girls are experiencing. Exactly. I, I have on my website, uh, training videos for each of the workshops so they can watch me teach it and, um, we go through it and I, I, I go talk to them, but because they know their girls and they have a connection with them, they're the right people to give this over to them. Um, and oftentimes they'll tell me great stories or they'll give me great quotes that I'll add in afterwards just to have in the teacher's notes for the next person, if they want to use that, because a lot of them personalize it. Um, and that's why I love when you pick the right person, it's much more effective and it works much better. Um, so it's been, thank God it's, it's gone for every sect. That's, that's really fantastic. And honestly, a huge accomplishment, especially when it comes to such a sensitive topic like this one, if somebody wants to learn more about you or about Atsumi or get their hands on this curriculum, how do they be in touch? How do we get this into even more schools? 
Oh, I, I would love that. Okay, so you can reach me personally. My email is marcy, M-A-R-C-Y, at otsme.org. Otsme is A-T-Z-M-I dot O-R-G. Um, our website is otsme.org. You can also contact me through there. Um, my personal website is marcyforta.com. I do also, I do a lot of guidance and support for parents of kids with eating disorders, kind of helping them on that journey of getting diagnosis and help for their child, what the do's and don'ts are. Um, so that's something else that I also do as well. Very good to know. I'm going to link all of that in the show notes so that everyone can access that. Uh, and definitely, if this is something that sounds interesting to you, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Forda, but the I think that the the best thing for a school to hear is for a parent to come and say, this is something that, you know, that our girls could use that that's that's a super powerful thing and if this is something that you want to see in your kid's school then you know talk to the principal talk to the administration talk to the leadership have them reach out or you reach out yourself and introduce them to the fact that this program exists and that there are things that we can do not only to combat eating disorders but also to just give our girls this foundation of confidence and and a like a deep knowledge of themselves that will serve them well in so many other aspects of their yes. life I agree with you 100% about the parents. They really have to kind of uh, want this in their schools as well. That, that's been the way in for me is usually a parent helps me get into the, but the schools are very open and they're seeing the problem. The truth is the, the eating disorders have gone up over 100% since COVID, 100% all over the world. It's not just in our community, but if you think about it, because we're at that you know increased likelihood of, of getting an eating disorder, um, we they've gone crazy. I get calls regularly. I mean, kids as young as nine, eight, nine years old, I'm getting calls about um, in the schools who are already in the throes of an eating disorder. So we really need these things in the school. We we need to help the girls. Um, it's, it's really important. Eating disorders are very hard to cure. Uh, so if we head them off, prevention is the best way to deal with them, right? We have to have early diagnosis, of course, if, if someone has it, but preventing them is is the way to go. And empirically, it's been proven to work. So we want to make sure that we do it the right way and we get in the right way. 100%. To end off, can you tell me what it means to you to make an impact? Oh, that's a great question. What does it mean to make an impact? Um, for me, it means changing one life. Um, an impact to me is if I can, obviously there's no way to quantify what girl might, may or may not have had an eating disorder and that I helped. There's really no good way to do that. But if I can help one girl feel better about herself, change the way she thinks about herself and her, and at her physical appearance as a measure of who she is, then I have made a great impact. So it's one person at a time for me. Um, yeah. I could not agree more. Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was really nice speaking with you, Rifki. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Forda or get in touch, the links are in the show notes. On last week's episode, I did a deep dive on dressing for body shape with stylist Kim Appelt. Listen to it wherever you're hearing this one. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of impact fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 28 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 17 people listed by Aura Agunod as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getaura.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Etzquitz. Catch me on all the socials including a TikTok that I just started posting to at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.